You are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. Welcome to the show for progressive followers of Jesus, who also happen to love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and surviving Order 66. This is Season 4, Episode 3, Scapegoating in Times of Crisis. I'm Adam Thomas, and I'm very happy to be sitting across the internet from Carrie Combs. Hi, Carrie. Hey, Adam. How are you today? Okay, a little tired. It's raining outside, um, Mm. but I'm excited to talk to you because I always like to talk to you. That's right. We've we've been on Zoom a lot recently because we just finished up our two-year D&D campaign. Three-year. Oh, my goodness. Three-year D&D campaign. What better way to survive a global pandemic but by sitting with your friends and loved ones on D&D, rolling dice and not living in the real world for a couple hours? Speaking of the next hour, what are we talking about today? We're talking about kind of a serious topic, but one that is very relevant to our lives today as we still are in the middle of a pandemic, number of different groups and peoples of which have been blamed for it, and that is scapegoating in times of crisis. So to frame our discussion today, we have a scripture quote from the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, verses 21 through 22. Then Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and sending it away into the wilderness by means of someone designated for the task. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a barren region, and the goat shall be set free in the wilderness. And our quotation from Nerd Canon comes from soon-to-be Emperor Palpatine in Star Wars Episode Three: The Revenge of the Sith. The Jedi Rebellion has been foiled. The remaining Jedi will be hunted down and defeated. The attempt on my life has left me scarred and deformed, but I assure you, my resolve has never been stronger. In order to ensure the security and continuing stability, the Republic will be reorganized into the first galactic empire for a safe and secure society. So our, our two quotations there, the scripture quotation and the quotation from Nerd Canon, show, I think, the evolution of scapegoating. So mm-hmm. why don't you talk to us a little bit about the biblical practice of scapegoating, which is very different from the way we think of modern scapegoating. Absolutely. So this this was from the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, and there was a practice in the cult of Israel of taking two goats picked by lots. One was sacrificed to God um, as a as animal sacrifice would happen back in the days. And the other one would, had all of the sins of the community placed on them kind of symbolically and sent away into the wilderness. Um, I believe it was a mistranslation that led to the word scapegoat later on and way down the centuries. Um, sort of meaning the escape goat, but this, the, the goat would go out and essentially carry away all of the sins of the community. Um, so that was kind of like an atonement ritual. So the the actual animal being sent off in this ritualistic way, you use the term cult of Israel there. I just want to clarify, we're using the word cult there in an academic sense. Right. We're talking about the like the cultic practice or the ritual practice of ancient Israel not the way we use the word cult in a, in a modern context. Nor do like modern day Jewish people necessarily do this. This is, you know, an ancient practice that may or may not have actually been done just, but it's in the Bible as a, as a commandment, as a practice. And so we see evidence of this in some of the language that we see later in scripture the verse that popped into my mind when we started thinking about the idea of the scapegoat biblically, the biblical scapegoat is from Psalm 103. As mm. far as the East is from the West, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. I thought that sounded to me like a verse about the scapegoat kind of wandering mm. off into the wilderness. That is a typical practice among human beings. We always are looking for someone to blame, someone to place our maybe our own faults on that's not ourselves. It's a, you know, scapegoating has become is a ritual practice from the Bible, but is also a psychological term that's used to talk about how humans in groups tend to behave. So this is a kind of a natural 
byproduct of being human doesn't mean to say it's a good one or a healthy one or one that leads to greater flourishing, um, especially in the way that it's been used historically. The misuse of the word the Jews in the Gospel of John, along with some uh, many other influences to create this culture of anti-Semitism that we have seen through the centuries where specifically the Jewish people are blamed for a number of things, blamed for the death of Christ, as we said from, you know, particularly based on the gospel of John, uh, the black death or other plagues that have, have come throughout history and the massive mistreatment of, of these people. Um, and so we've, you know, seeing, seeing this biblical practice that then is part of human nature in some ways that then has a number of historical instances leading up to today um, for the way that COVID's being blamed for various groups. And jumping back to the biblical practice of scapegoating, you know, the, the cultic nature of the ritual of laying the iniquities on to the, the animal and sending it away, I think is almost, is really a beautiful way of ritualizing that human tendency so that we aren't doing it to, to other people. Other people. Yeah. Um, and, and, but nowadays when we talk about scapegoating, it is always in this sense of, of how do people in power stay in power by demonizing people so that the dominant group can stay on top. Right. And we see that when we see this right now with anti-immigration movement, it's easy for politicians to boost their own power and credibility by saying, you know, these are the people that are to blame for your economic woes, for the lack of jobs. We saw this in the early, in the 19th and 20th century with um, Mexican population. The immigrants coming from Mexico were thought erroneously to be more like physically hardy than the average person living around there. And so they were better suited for railroad building and agricultural jobs. But then as those jobs became more and more prized and or jobs became less common, it was they were blamed for taking the jobs away from people. And then the opposite was true. Instead of being more hardy, there was, again, false science being thought that they were more susceptible to diseases and therefore burdensome. So taking a group that has you know, newly arrived to the country, economically less powerful than the dominant culture, and laying the blames of whatever is convenient, even if that's completely changed throughout, you know, the narrative changes based on whatever is convenient for those in power. Today, you, you mentioned um, immigration. When we when we look at the news today, we in in the the time of COVID, incidences of violence against Asian Americans rose sharply at the beginning of the pandemic, mm -hmm. when certain politicians were demonizing the pandemic as the kung flu or the oh, China God, yeah. virus, right? Yeah. Uh, and since then. Um, with this fourth wave, the Delta wave of COVID that we're in right now, we are hearing politicians blaming uh, those coming to the Southern border as immigrants for spreading COVID, which if you look at the maps, doesn't really make any sense, but these are the scapegoats that we're seeing in our modern context. And I want to read uh, from a wonderful new book. It's been out about a year Mm -hmm. uh, this is uh, from Cast, The Origins of Our Discontent by Isabel Wilkerson, who won the Pulitzer Prize for another amazing book called The Warmth of Other Suns, which is about the Great Migration. Uh, she has a whole chapter um, about the scapegoat in, in this book. And Ooh, she's, she's, she says this, uh, it's a bit of a long quote, but here we go. Um, and she meant she starts with the, the ritual in Leviticus. Um, this was the ritual according to Leviticus that was passed down through the ages, adopted by the ancient Greeks. It survives not only in individual interactions, but within nations and castes. For the ancients, the scapegoat served as the healing agent for the larger whole. In modern times, the concept of the scapegoat has mutated from merely the bearer of misfortune to the person or group blamed for bringing misfortune. And then she continues with a quotation. Uh, this serves to relieve others, wrote the Jungian psychologist Sylvia Britton Pereira, to free, quote, the scapegoaters of their own responsibilities and to strengthen the scapegoaters' sense of power and righteousness. And then Wilkerson continues, in a caste system, 
whether in the United States or in India or in World War II Germany, the lowest caste performed the unwitting role of diverting society's attention from its structural ills and taking the blame for collective misfortune. It was seen, in fact, as misfortune itself. Wow. Yeah. So the idea there that originally the scapegoat was seen as a healing agent, but it mutated and morphed to the concept of the scapegoat as the bearer of mis- uh, not the not merely the bearer of misfortune, but being blamed for the misfortune. It's as if the people of Israel would have taken the goat and said, this is all your fault. <laughs> That exactly. where the, all the problems that we have, it's your fault, goat. That wasn't the original idea. And I'm picturing that. And it and it does. It seems ridiculous because what you know, what does the goat have to do with it? And yet so many of these historical atrocities of scapegoating are equally kind of non nonsensical. You think about the persecution of the Jews during the Holocaust. It was based on it's often based on pseudoscience and prejudice and fear, um, not based on any actual fact. And it's, it is as nonsensical as pointing at a goat. And yet it distracts as, as um, Wilkerson so eloquently said, it distracts from those on the top who are consolidating their power. And it's a little bit of what we noticed in looking at the fantasy properties that we're going to talk about today is that there's in these fantasy books and movies, there's two kinds of scapegoats, not the healing presence as the cult of Israel would use, but instead ones that are powerful and feared, and then ones that are not powerful. Either way, they're made to be outcasts. So our nerd quote was from Star Wars, where the Jedi are being scapegoated for a lot of the problems going on, and they're powerful and thus feared, which is different than um, other other examples. Yeah, it, Palpatine wants to create the Galactic Empire, and the <clears throat> excuse me, the only people that are really standing in his way are the Jedi. The Jedi are seen as these legendary heroes that there are only, you know, what, 10,000 Jedi or something in a, in a, in a galaxy of trillions of people, literally. Mm -hmm. So maybe there's more than 10,000. I'm not sure. There's not very many Jedi. Uh, And so they have this sort of mythic proportion. The, the average citizen of the, the Republic of before that's the empire would never have ever met a Jedi. They mm-hmm. might have heard that the Jedi exist. They might know of some legendary exploits. Palpatine, of course, knows that they are a threat to his ascension. And the way to get rid of them is to blame them for something that he is actually uh, the cause of. Right. And how how easy is it to believe that this secretive seeming mysterious order of powerful people who command something that no one, the average person doesn't understand it's easy to believe that they they would be the ones who were causing this. It is there's a conspiracy and a mystery and a secrecy and above all that power and fear. And we see that uh, reflected also in in a really powerful way in the Broken Earth trilogy by fantasy author N.K. Jemison, mm-hmm. where the uh, there is a, a group of people in this world called the Origins who have the ability to manipulate. What, what would you say? Um, rocks? I, I'm not even well, yeah, sure. It's, like, it's manipulating the, the energies of the earth, which is helpful right there, because yeah. in, in their land called this, ironically called the stillness, it is a very unstill land. It's a land of tremors and earthquakes and very delicate balance. So this ability to manipulate was seen as could be very powerful and protective as it, as it is in the beginning of the book with the main character, but is also deeply feared. It feared and feared so much so that the people who the greater population rely on for their safety are demonized for what they can do. It's really strange that mm-hmm. that is these are um, <clears throat> the people that are being relied on are also the ones who are being scapegoated. The origins are kept under control by this group of people called the guardians, who are really scary. Like just a bit, like super scary. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they're also kept under control by their own internalized oppression uh, because they have, they have sort of in many ways bought into their lie that their society has taught them. And a, a big part of the story of the book is the main character uh, whose name changes several times over the book. So that's why we're not <laughs> probably the main character, the, the main character. Um, she starts to wake up to that 
to the way that she's been exploited by her society. And part of the, the, that waking up process happens when she and the other main character uh, discover a, uh, a child in a node in the middle of the first book. And that that child in the node is, is basically a, a vegetable. Oh, Remember I forgot this? about that. Yeah. I'm sorry. So like kind of like uses like a battery and almost, is you, like and is used, style. And is used, yeah, as this, um, oh. it's, the brain is still functioning and is still able to, to calm the tremors. But that's, but that's what that body is used for. And that child was just thrown away. What we see in this society is these, the origins um, who are very powerful and so powerful in, in, you know, they basically, the, the other main character destroys the main city at the very beginning of yeah. the first book um, because he's like, I'm done. I'm done playing this game. And not just that, but that this class of people with, with have so much power are being bred essentially like animals to continue putting these children in the places where they can be used. And the main character's own children being born outside that system still ne- are negatively wrapped up in that in that oppression, in that fear. And we see uh, in the third book of this trilogy, this isn't really giving anything away, even though it's near oh, the good. end of the third book. Because I didn't finish it still. Okay, well, um, so in the third book, we see way back in time, way back in time to the, uh, the kind of like earliest city in the stillness when all of the when all of the stuff originally happens which all comes comes home to roost in the the main part of the story so we're talking about the city of sil anagust uh it says life is sacred in sil anagust i don't know if i'm saying that right um as it should be for the city burns life as the fuel for its glory the niece were not the first people chewed up in its maw just the latest and cruelest extermination of many But for a society built on exploitation, there is no greater threat than having no one left to oppress. And now, if nothing else is done, Silanagist must again find a way to fission its people into subgroupings and create reasons for conflict among them. There's not enough magic to be had just from plants or gene-engineered fauna. Someone must suffer if the rest are to enjoy luxury. Hmm. And that's the concept of a scapegoat, that someone must suffer if the rest are to enjoy luxury because all of the blames of the ills of society are put onto the one who is made to suffer so that the other ones feel okay about the luxury that they're experiencing. This is reminding me of a short story that is well worth a read. I'm not going to say much about it, except that if you're interested in this topic, I'll always plug Ursula K. Le Guin's The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas, which is kind of that in a nutshell, but describes so beautifully in her effective writing style that I would I highly recommend that short story if you're interested in the concept of scapegoating. Well, we'll have to put the name of that short story in on the show notes this week. So those are the so there's those are the scapegoats. The Jedi and the Origins fill that first role of that first kind of scapegoat of the powerful people that need to be put out of the way so that another group can rise in dominance. And they mm-hmm. they put them that that dominant group puts them out of the way um, by making them feared. Exactly by the general populace. And then we have the other kind of a scapegoat that we see both in the real world, of course, and also in fantasy properties, which are people who exist on that lowest rung of society, that vulnerable place in society where they don't have much recourse for action, which is interesting because oftentimes the things they're being blamed for, they don't necessarily even have the capacity to do right. because of, of their position in society. And if they did have the, the, the ability to do those things, they wouldn't be in that position in society. So the whole concept like your, doesn't like really goat. make sense. Yeah. Like the goat, like, yeah, it's, like the it's, goat saying again, like, this is all your fault that I committed adultery and, and stole stuff from my neighbor. It's your fault. Goat. Not that, to say that these populations are goats. We broke the 10 commandments and it's your fault. Goat. I do blame my dog a lot for things that I've done. <laughs> oh, Declan. he is the number one He's scapegoat the dog. He's the scape dog. Oh man. But I do think that that kind of thinking back to the original goat of this, you know, the scapegoat. And if we if we imagine ourselves with a real world scapegoat and going, but if we said that to the goat, it wouldn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. And therefore it doesn't make any sense in real life either. Uh, so so what are a couple of the uh you had you had one? I think the idea for this episode kind of came from 
from a book that Adam wrote that he's maybe more loath to talk about than I am, but Adam wrote a book called The Halfling Contagion in his fantasy world um, that not all of it takes place on Sularil. It kind of only ends in Sularil, but you've heard us talk about this before. It's the fantasy world he created. And little did you know that how many years later we would be facing a global pandemic? Yeah, I wrote this in 2017. Will you tell us, so the main the main plot is a plague comes to these islands. Um, the humans get it and die very rapidly. The halflings, or as they're called in, or, you know, hobbits in J.K. J.K. Rowling. <laughs> J.R.R.K. Somebody British. Uh, the professor's world uh, called hobbits. Adam calls them the kinmacron. Um, they do not contract the plague. They are safe from it. And then it is very easy for them to be blamed by the one who's scheming to be in power. So I would like to ask what, what caused you to want to write about that concept of, you know, that calling it the halfling contagion, that they are being blamed for this awful plague? Well, it came about because I wrote a world guide for Sularil. And I wrote a very cryptic paragraph about how the halflings arrived in Sularil. Oh, no. And the cryptic paragraph had something like they they were blamed for something crazy in their old homeland and they escaped. That's literally all it said. And when I went back and I read that <laughs> again, like a year or two after starting the, you know, the playing Dungeons and Dragons in Sularil, I looked at that and I went, wow, there's a, there's a story there. Mm. I don't know what it is yet, but there is a story there. And then the story kind of built itself around that concept and the idea of the plague uh, happening. And we know at the, within the first two or three pages of the book that they have nothing to do with the plague. The right, reader the knows prologue. that. It's in the prologue. We know as the, the readers know that. And so what the book is about, one of the section, one of the main characters is actually the villain. It, he's, the, he's the only only time I've ever written from the perspective of the villain, uh, which was actually a lot of fun for me, you know, oh, because it's also really gross to read and horrible. Well, right. <laughs> so well done. But, 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 you know, you get into that mindset and you have to figure out, okay, well, obviously he doesn't think he's the villain because yeah. villains never yeah. think they're the villain, right. Or else they're really, really wooden villains. And so what we have to figure out is what is, what is that person who wants power? What is his motivation to blame this group of refugees, they're refugees to this land. And oh, even say at one that. point in the book that is, is the refugees plight that there are always refugees, no matter how many generations have been there. Because mm. the main character halflings are second generation. They were born in the country. Mm -hmm. This is their home, the only home they've ever known. And yet they are being scapegoated. And once they are scapegoated as the, as the, creators of this plague then the then the the person seeking power can do anything he wants including including what happens in the book but okay. yeah which 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 we, we don't have to spoil the whole thing so for further information pick up, the halfling <laughs> pick up the halfling contagion on amazon um but yeah the, the idea of the the pandemic that happens there was I, I was looking for something that could exist in this world but obviously not be something caused by this group. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they're immune to it is a big plot point of the story and is what makes the humans suspicious mm -hmm. and it allows them to put that seed of suspicion and doubt into the populace, which then morphs into that, into that horrible, uh, you know, into all the horrible things that ended up happening. Um, it has a, it has a happy ending, by the way, people who want, might want to read this book. Sort of. It has a melancholy but happy ending. Our last example of a scapegoat in in fantasy, and of course there are plenty more that we're not going over. So if you have more that you want to uh, share with us, just hit us up on facebook.com slash nerdychristians uh, and let us know of other scapegoat examples in, in fantasy. Uh, this one comes from The Parable of the Talents by Octavia Butler, written in the, in the 1990s. And the author, Octavia Butler, basically predicted 2016 and following, uh, in, in, yeah. in, including the phrase, make America great again. This, these books uh, center around a basically a pagan cult called Earthseed out in California. This book does, at least, The Parable of the Talents. And the people in Earthseed, who are basically just a commune, right? Mm -hmm. they're, they're just, they, they farm, and that's it. That's that's what they are. They're farmers. Very um, suspicious. And they're very suspicious farmers because they have this religion that they've created. The 
the person who becomes president of the United States was a uh, a pastor in the Church of Christian America. Oh no, yeah. I got to reread these books. Yeah, you really yeah, it's tough. So in in the parable of the talents, we have quotations from the sermons of this person who becomes president of the United States. And I'm just going to read a a short passage from here because I obviously don't want to read all this out loud. It's Mm -hmm. pretty gross. Um, He says, there was a time, Christian Americans, when our country ruled the world. America was God's country and we were God's people and God took care of his own. Now look at us. Who are we? What are we? What foul, seething, corrupt, heathen concoction have we become? And it continues on like that for a page or so, which I'm not going to read. Um, And then he (laughs) continues on why have we allowed ourselves to be seduced and betrayed by these allies of satan these heathen purveyors of false and unchristian doctrines these people these pagans are not only wrong they're dangerous they are they're as destructive as bullets as contagious as plagues as poisonous as snakes to the society they infest you can see where the scapegoating language is being used here, right they kill us christian american brothers and sisters they kill us they rouse the righteous anger of god against us for our misguided generosity to them so basically he's saying god is smiting us because we are we have been generous to these people Mm. they are the natural destroyers of our country so all of our problems are because of them right yeah and he continued i'm skipping a little bit here and then he continues and in the face of all that what are we to them shall we live with them shall we let them continue to drag our country down into hell think what do we do to weeds to viruses to parasitic worms to cancers what must we do to protect ourselves and our children what can we do to regain our stolen nation yeah and then the narrator uh of the books lauren uh, olamina uh says nasty very nasty Jarrett was the junior senator from texas when he preached the sermon that contained those lines. He never answered the questions he asked. He left that to his listeners. And yet he says he's against the witch burnings. So if I had to pick a book that was kind of about the concept of scapegoating, it's Mm -hmm. this one. It is, it it is. And Octavia Butler writing that in 1998 uh, is seeing the future. Through, I'm assuming a a well-versed, being well-versed in the past. And, and being very aware of the history of oppressed groups being used that way or in just completely innocent groups. Reading fiction written by black women mm-hmm. is really instructive because the horrors that are visited upon society are visited upon black women before other groups. And it's easier for those who are not that population to say, this has never happened before, or I'm so surprised I'm heartbroken, I'm sickened, I'm shocked by these current atrocities. And and we we have the short memories, we have the privilege who are able to forget what has happened. Um, it's it's not surprising to someone like Octavia Butler, I'm sure. Scapegoating is a way to, as we said earlier, deflect and distract away from the real perpetrators of all of the big sins of the world onto groups that are to to those perpetrators disposable. And so for us, for Carrie and me, who, uh, and perhaps for some of our listeners, um, who are kind of standing in the middle. We are people who believe in the gospel and we're not part of those groups that are being scapegoated. And yet, nor are we fully in the power manipulating the narrative, Mm -hmm. Um, but we who are faithful people in the middle. So I would say, Adam, I, and hopefully some of our dear listeners as Christians who are trying to respond to the call to be beacons of light and truth and healing for the whole world, we have a responsibility, I believe, in this, in this, with this human tendency, with this historical tendency that has been explored in so many fantasy properties. If we are seeing this happening and being surprised, maybe part of our first thing is to learn more about what has happened and and not be as surprised. The second thing we can do is to to interrupt those narratives of manipulation. Challenge the scapegoating narrative Mm. and then standing with those who are being scapegoated that silence in the face of oppression is, is complicity with the oppressed, with the oppressor. Um, As Elie Wiesel said, a version of that, his was more eloquent than what I just said, (laughs) (laughs) you know, so how do we discern the motives behind the action of scapegoating and work to disrupt it? You know, there's always power, money or control at the root of that. And if we can see it for what's really, if we see what's really happening, 
we can we can help to disrupt that narrative and to challenge it and to and again stand with those who are being scapegoated so that they know that that they aren't being sent into the wilderness alone that there are people who are going to keep them or who are going to help them stay centered in in the society as opposed to being cast off and i think that's important and powerful for believers we've talked before in the podcast about the suicide systems of the world that systems that draw people into them and are in and of themselves self-destructive and scapegoating can be one of those ways this is a way of stepping claiming autonomy and power for ourselves well I guess, through, through the God and through our belief in Jesus and taking a step back from the easiest, simplest narrative, the simple human tendency of wanting to blame someone else for what's going wrong, claiming our complicity in it, or perhaps just looking deeper below the surface and not being manipulated ourselves. And, and yeah, scapegoating is a form of societal manipulation. And so what we can do as God calls us to look look deeper into the revelation of of God you know where we we pull back the curtain and we see what's truly happening in the world and then we invite God's reign to come in heal and restore that part of that is to fight against the manipulation that is scapegoating This episode's Ask Us Anything question comes from my friend, Mindy. She asks, is there a point at which devotion to a fandom becomes unhealthy or idolatrous? One of my fandoms is the Laurel K. Hamilton Anita Blake books. And Laurel K. Hamilton says, fanaticism in any form is scary. So when you get so deep into something that you don't think anymore. So what do you think, Adam? Is there a point at which fandom transcends faith and becomes dangerous. I have a very particular answer to this question, and it might not really be what Mindy is wondering about, but it has to do with uh, the way Star Wars fans have weaponized the Star Wars fandom. Ooh, talk to us about that's, that. That's the one that really jumped out at me when I, when I thought about fandom becoming unhealthy. Um, so there is a subset of Star Wars fans who consider themselves, quote unquote, true fans of Star Wars. And these are people who uh, will trollishly online uh, castigate anyone whose way of loving Star Wars is not the same as theirs. So there's kind of a fundamentalism of their 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 fandom around Star Wars, and and it and it and it really came to a head around the time of the Last Jedi coming out because we talked about this a couple of weeks or a couple of episodes ago. Oh yes, uh, where the there was this huge uh, push online to tank the Rotten Tomatoes score for the Last Jedi because a certain subset of fans thought it would hated it, and then this same subset of fans ran Kelly Marie Kelly Marie Tran off of Twitter. And, and so when a, when a fandom becomes toxic like that, that's when it becomes unhealthy and, and idolatrous. Um, because what fa- fandom is about celebrating the things we love. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I remember, this is from Critical Role, but I love it so much <laughs> that one of the, one of the problems of, of the internet is being told your fun is wrong. Yes. Right. And so if, if you are being told, if you are telling somebody else their way of loving a fandom is wrong, then your love of the fandom has, there, there's a problem with your relationship to your fandom because you're mm-hmm. weaponizing it. That's, that's how I would answer this question. I see it from a different side, or I started to approach it from a different side, thinking about how when I participate in a fandom, mostly through reading, that's my primary way of enjoying media as a lifelong reader. And I can get so deep into the books I read that I tend to lose myself a little bit, particularly first person narratives really capture me. And I can get so caught up that I forget what is real, (laughs) what relationships of mine are true, what my relationship to God looks like. And I think the desire to live in a fantasy world 
different than our own so fully that we lose track of our current reality can be dangerous. Um, I love this podcast because I'm able to take the things I love and engage in deeply with the real world that I do live in and investigate, use, use those properties and those books and those movies I love to look at my real life. But when I'm using fantasy entirely as an escapist plot to get me out of this real life, that's when I think it can become dangerous or as Mindy may have used the word, use the word idolatrous, um, keeping them tied together, not so separate that you think that real life and fantasy have nothing to do with each other, nor so enmeshed that you kind of, you know, you live in Harry Potter land 24 seven, but using them as we do in this podcast in conversation. Um, and I, I knowing that if I'm, if I'm trying to escape into fantasy more often than not, or escaping to such a degree that I lose track of reality, there's something going on in my real life that I need to attend to. If, if you have a question for Carrie and me for the podcast, do please uh, put it on our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash nerdy Christians. Today on the podcast, we're reading through Harry Potter 7 chapters 10 through 14. Here's a quick recap. Chapter 10, Creature's Tale. The trio hunkered down at Grimmauld Place and Harry finds a letter from his mother to Sirius, which makes him long to visit Godric's Hollow even more. Across the hall from Sirius's room are the initials R-A-B, the wizard who stole the locket with Sirius's brother, Regulus. And what's more, Creature was in on it. The house elf tells the whole story, how he helped Voldemort get to the island, how he got Regulus there too, how Regulus died after drinking the potion, and how, try as he might, Creature could not destroy the locket. And by the by, Mundungus Fletcher stole it. Chapter 11, The Bribe. Finally, a member of the order comes to see the trio in the form of Remus Lupin. He wants to join the team, but Harry confronts him about his duty as an impending father and sends him packing. But Lupin was there just long enough to provide some vital exposition. The fascist state is forming as the ministry and the Death Eaters are now one and the same, and they're rounding up Muggleborns. The new minister of magic is under the imperious curse and Voldemort is pulling the strings. Creature returns from his fetch quest with Mundungus, who shares a piece of dispiriting news. The locket is in the hands of Dolores Umbridge. Chapter 12, Magic is Might. The trio plan for a month about how to infiltrate the ministry, but as happens to any good Dungeons & Dragons plan, it starts falling apart right away. The wife of Reg Cattermole, the wizard Ron is impersonating, is about to be questioned about her blood status, and a hopelessly unqualified Ron is press-ganged into sorting out a rainstorm in a Death Eater's office. Also, the Ministry has a new slogan, Magic is Might. Also, also, there's a horrible new statue in the Ministry of a pair of wizards sitting on thrones made of hundreds of naked muggles. Also, 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 Snape is the new headmaster of Hogwarts. Chapter 13, The Muggle-Born Registration Commission. After scouting Umbridge's office and pilfering Mad-Eye's magic eye, Harry heads down to the courtroom intent on retreating with Hermione. Dementors patrol the courtroom area where Mrs. Cattermole is being grilled by Umbridge, who is wearing the locket. Impulsively, Harry stuns Umbridge and Yaxley, casts his Patronus, and tries to escape with the Muggle-born prisoners, of course. Hermione grabs the locket, magics a fake one, and they flee. Meeting Ron in the atrium, they disapparate together, but something goes awry. Chapter 14, The Thief. Grimmauld Place is compromised, so Hermione brute force apparates them to a quiet forest to get away from Yaxley. Now, splinching sounds silly until you see it happen, and Ron's losing blood fast. Thankfully, Hermione has a cure-all in Essence of Dittany. Hermione begins what becomes a ritual of casting protective enchantments while Ron rests. Harry takes first watch outside their tent, another TARDIS, by the way, and dreams of Volt excuse me, he who must not be named, killing Grigorovich. A young thief has stolen something from the Eastern European wandmaker and the Dark Lord is after it. I'd say infiltrating the ministry. So there's a lot, there's a lot there, I think, in Creature's Tale, but most relevant to our discussion from earlier is that chapter, those two chapters, um, Magic is Might and the Muggleborn Registration Commission, where we see from the inside how this new wizard supremacist fascist state is being run and the extent to which the Muggleborns are the scapegoats of the wizarding society. Uh, we learn, 
I think in, it's in chapter 11 that the so that the new the new regime um, this is courtesy of Lupin the new regime who's rounding up Muggleborns um, it's because the so-called Muggleborn is likely to have obtained magical power by theft or force and I I was so fascinated by this that Ron the privileged wizarding pure blood blood trader that he is says people won't let this happen and Lupin's the one who has to say it is happening Ron so Ron being in that place of saying this can't this can't possibly be happening there's no way people would let this happen and it's like well no it it's already happened not only is it possible it's it's occurring yeah and that coming from Lupin who is as a werewolf one of the people who is pushed to the margins of of the wizarding society and yeah, and that's an interesting concept idea of, of Ron of the three being the most privileged and therefore being the one who is has the most blindness when it comes to how could power be abused. Right. Because he's the insider of this of this society. Hermione is a muggle born. Harry was raised by muggles. Lupin is a werewolf. Ron's the one who was raised. You know, his family has experiences poverty, certainly. And that's its own challenge, especially within the wizarding world where seemingly everyone knows each other's bank accounts and gets yeah. to look inside them whenever they choose. Um, but, but Ron has not experienced the kind of prejudice around blood status. He's almost being a blood trader is he says it's like, you know, second best to being Harry Potter himself or a muggle born, but he still has the insider perspective. Obviously you can see that JK Rowling was influenced by the rise of Nazi Germany in this whole story. The other parallel being, when are people going to start turning each other in? Who's who's ratting on who? Um, the the authoritarian state deputizes its citizens to spy on each other. And we also see on within the places of power, the threat of being investigated into your blood status is used as a point of manipulation by those in power. I think by Yaxley, he's like, you know, be careful. Otherwise I'm going to have someone come and check around your bloodlines, which just shows it's, it's nonsense. And even Umbridge uh, basically boasts about her blood status because the S on the locket stands for Selwyn, not, Selwyn. not Slytherin. And I'm, no. I'm, I'm um, related to all of the, most pure bloodiest families the sacred 28 which by the way gross name for a gross concept Wait, is that a thing that's not in here is um, it? that might be that's not in this is that a pottermore book, thing it might be a pottermore thing but but from these ministry chapters we get to see this building of this fascist state we've got this shadow leader um as you said like pulling the strings guiding the government Propaganda, complete control of the press and propaganda being pushed out, not just around Muggleborns, but also around Harry and his involvement in the death of Albus Dumbledore. So giving a reason to hunt him, complete control of magical education. So now you attendance at Hogwarts is compulsory. And then finally, the scapegoating of the Muggleborns. It's terrifying. And not just the scapegoating of the Muggleborns, but there's a gaslighting as well with them, Be- with the uh, with. Mrs. Cattermole, we see her wand being oh, a point of contention, God, yeah. and and Umbridge is grilling her about her wand. You know, which who which who did you steal this wand from? Mm-hmm. And I didn't steal it. I, it chose me. It chose me when I was year eleven old. years old. So <laughs> oh Umbridge, God. Umbridge is completely rewriting Mrs. Cattermole's history as a way to subject subjugate her and taking what may have been one of the most beautiful moments of her entire life the moment that she was chosen and she found a home and a fit and taking that and saying who'd you steal it from taking something so pure and beautiful and making it just base and gross which is Umbridge to a T, let's yeah, be fair. And yeah, she's the you know, most evil person. We've already established that um, exactly. Dolores Umbridge is the most evil person in Harry Potter. And I think it's Ron who's like, you know, what do we want to bet that she's being completely um, manipulated or possess- full on possessed by the Horcrux? And she's not necessarily possessed by it. It's not like what Jenny with diary. It's just feeding all the natural evilness that she herself inhabits and has and has the power to release. Yeah, it's just amplifying she's well it. in her. Yeah, she's well in her element in that courtroom, mm-hmm. holding up lies. So, man, these chapters are pretty dark. <laughs> they are. I love. I love. Or should we talk about Creatures Redemption story and Regulus? 
uh, sure. And then we'll have to have the caveat that he's still enslaved, but go ahead. All right. So there's definitely that a hundred percent. Let's talk about, <laughs> I meant go, more go right. <laughs> I'm wondering, all right. So in reading the chapters, I was wondering what turned Regulus from mm. being a death eater, a little mm-hmm. fan of Voldemort with press clippings above his bed, which also gross. Yeah. What turned him? Do you think? Is there, something in the, is there something in the text about it or are you quizzing me or are you want, or are, are, I'm, are you I'm, asking I'm wondering. me? I, I have a, I have a wonder. I'm curious what, what yours is. Cause I don't, I don't have an answer. I'm wondering if it was the treatment of creature by Voldemort. Hmm. If that was part of it, because clearly, you know, Regulus has a good relationship in as much as he can with this enslaved creature that lives in his home and um, has a much better relationship with him than he does with Sirius. Regulus is then willing. Creature has with Sirius or with Regulus well, has both. with Sirius. Okay. <laughs> Sirius with both of them. Not good. Um, and that when Creature gets back from the island and shares the story, Regulus was worried. And I think part of that's the fear that Voldemort will find out that Creature lives because Voldemort expected it to be a you know a death mission. Um, and he sees this kind of rising power in Voldemort. But I just wonder if the, given that. Regulus dies and creature escapes and completes, tries to complete the mission that would have probably been better off for a wizard to do. Was that part of, was creature's involvement sort of what started to turn Regulus? That's my wondering for today. I I like that a lot. That makes a lot of sense because I can't think of anything else, at least within the text that we have that would change Regulus's mind. Um, And we don't know a lot about him, honestly. We just have Sirius's interpretation of like, you know, he started to get cold feet perhaps, or, you know, started to want to, he got in too deep and wanted to back out and like, kind of like the mob, they're going to kill you or something, Mm, which mm -hmm. we learned is not true. Regulus was not killed by Voldemort, but by the Inferi. So I just wonder that he is, he is a transformed character and of the redemption arcs in Harry Potter, you know, with Snape, with, with creature to an extent, um, there's not a lot of information about Regulus. Yeah, that's one of those stories where it'd be fun to have a, either a, f- a fanfic or a, like a short story about oh. his character. There probably is a fanfic a about Regulus, yeah. but I don't read fanfic, so <laughs> that's going to have to be your job. I'll look some up later. <laughs> <laughs> the problem with Marauder's Era fan fiction is that they all, unless they're completely non-canon they're always going to end up being sad yeah right right <laughs> like it's not it's not happy sort of like the star wars prequels where you're like yep yeah we know what happens to these characters order Uh-oh. 66 yeah there go the younglings Ugh. uh yeah and hermione says of course voldemort would have considered the ways of house elves uh beneath his notice just like all the purebloods who treat them like animals it would never have occurred to him occurred to him that they might have magic that he didn't i think that's an interesting way to look at it and we'll revisit that later in king's cross again right when dumbledore says of all the things that voldemort you know overlooks children's tales house elves and most importantly love um but then of course creature the way that jk rowling writes house elves is that they they are terrified of not being enslaved mm-hmm. which which we've talked about being problematic before right in, that they are in, somehow yeah. naturally predisposed to want to be in that position and if harry had released creature by giving him clothes like he did with dobby creature would have just not known what to do he would have been freaked out yeah um and so giving him the locket is this kind of nice moment with Harry and Creature, which turns Creature's, uh, you know, um, personality around, and he starts cooking better. Uh, but it's just that you know the fact that 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 this that these creatures are C R E A T U R S creatures, yeah, yeah, yeah. The house elves. <laughs> See what she did are, there. Yeah. Oh man, uh, that they're kind of played for laughs. That they're there's not a lot of thought, I don't think, by the author around what she created. With the house elves like so many things it's it's disturbing and when i read these when i read these books as a teenager and early 20 somethings i think the house elves just sort of sailed right by me it wasn't until i reread them as an adult after having more of an awakening to um racial justice and uh the um history of enslavement um that i see in fiction some more problematic uh writing especially here in in Harry Potter. 
And that's why one day we're going to do an episode on house elves and the Ood from Doctor Who. We're kind of going backwards here, but the beginning of chapter 10, we have Harry thinking about Dumbledore. Mm. Oh, and, yes. Right. Uh, after after reading his mom's letter to Sirius and, and uh, starting to get little snippets of Rita Skeeter. Right. Uh, and Harry thinks, could Dumbledore have let such things happen uh, about his little sister? I think is, is mm-hmm. the idea. Being there, right? imprisoned. Being yeah. and hidden. Had he been like Dudley? content to watch neglect and abuse as long as it did not affect him. And that I think ties right into Ron's ignorance over how society is actually falling. He has the privilege to, for it not to affect him if he chose not for it not to. Right. And we remember that, that moment with Dudley being like, well, why isn't Harry coming with us? Cause he doesn't want to. Yeah. And, and for, for, for those of us, uh, and I say us because I'm talking to Carrie. I'm talking about Carrie and me right now as the people who are talking on this podcast. It goes back to what we we're talking about at the end of the scapegoating segment. Mm-hmm. Um, for those of us who have the privilege to not be personally affected by some evil in society, that is not to say that we, A, ourselves are not affected by it because what affects one affects all. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just the way creation works. And we have we have a responsibility to our wider society to stand up for what's right, even if it's not what's easy or what's convenient. Next time on the podcast, we'll be reading Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, chapters 15 through 18. That's The Goblin's Revenge, Godric's Hollow, Bathilda's Secret, and The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore. Happy reading. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. Please give us a rating or review on your podcast app so others can discover us too. You can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media, facebook.com slash nerdychristians and on Twitter at nerdychristians where I occasionally tweet bad memes. You can find Adam on Twitter at Rev Adam Thomas or on his website, adamthomas.net. Vampire Mist is his newest book and it's a story about a group of friends who are less terrible at their jobs than anyone could have ever imagined. As always, you can find both of us right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. May God grant you the courage to speak out when silence is more convenient, the wisdom to unravel twisted narratives, and the strength to stand in the way of oppression. And the blessing of our liberating God be upon you always. Amen. Amen.